This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we'll begin with this story of college students whose school is closing and whose credits are in doubt. The Art Institute of Colorado will shut its doors this month, and students, faculty, and staff are scrambling. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf is covering this story. Hi, Steph. Hey, Ryan. Uh, this school got a new owner back in January. Then it came to light in July it would be closing. What was the reaction? Many teachers and students I spoke with said they were blindsided. James Sherman taught art history at the Art Institute of Colorado since the beginning of 2016. I was operating on the premise that this new parent company was in for the long haul and they'd made lots of gestures in that way. It looked like things were going along well and then boom, sort of out of the blue right between the two quarters, I got a letter, and most people got a letter saying, the school's closing, your job's being terminated. Sherman describes things as chaotic, people were really upset, and he says there wasn't a lot of information from the parent company at the time. Then students and staff started leaving. Fast. So Sherman says he originally had about 15 students enrolled in the summer quarter of his art history class, but only five finished. We lost 10 students. Uh, The Mm -hmm. school's new owner is Dream Center Education Holdings. Uh, Why did they decide to close dozens of schools so soon after buying them? That's a great question. Unfortunately, my many emails and phone calls asking for an interview went unanswered. But Dream Center sent out a statement in July. It said it wouldn't take any new students at a number of Art Institute campuses, as well as Argosy and South University schools. Because they're also owned by the same company. Correct. Then an updated statement said it would, quote, discontinue campus-based programs at these schools, So you can imagine how confusing that would have been for those already enrolled. At the time, a spokeswoman said enrollment had dropped at the closing locations. Data backs that up. She also said demand had shifted towards online learning. For an art degree, that surprises me. Yeah. I mean, many Art Institute students told me learning online is not ideal for their programs. They really want a hands-on education. Imagine trying to learn how to work in a dark room in an online photography class. What do you know about Dream Center Education Holdings? Well, people were desperate to get the Art Institute back on track because its previous owner had a troubled history. It had to pay out tens of millions of dollars to settle a consumer fraud lawsuit and then filed for bankruptcy. So when Dream Center offered $60 million to buy a bunch of these schools, it was welcomed news. But the new owners didn't really have any experience in higher education. It's possible they got in over their heads, one analyst told me. And what exactly is Dream Center Education Holdings? It's part of the Los Angeles-based Christian charity, also called Dream Center, It's best known for its work in areas like poverty, hunger, and domestic violence, and it promised to convert all these schools to nonprofits. Okay, so Dream Center was supposed to be the savior of sorts, but as Mm -hmm. you say, may have gotten in over its head. What were the first signs of trouble? When the purchase was finalized in January and Dream Center officially became the new owner, four campuses, including the Art Institute of Colorado, had their accreditation temporarily downgraded. Now, that's typical when there's a new owner, but no one ever told the students and faculty that, for a while at least, the school essentially was non-accredited. In fact, the course catalog said that it was, and the website said the same thing for a time. That did change after press inquiries. So students continue to go to class, earning credits or graduating with degrees that were not accredited. Now, were they required to tell students about the accreditation change? 
The accrediting agency Higher Learning Commission posts this information publicly online, but it also expects organizations to give notice within two weeks of a change. There's also a Colorado statute that says a private college or university must immediately notify the state about any accreditation change. The state would make sure that the school then notified students, students and staff. But none of that happened? Again, so many people told me they just had no idea. The State Department of Higher Ed says it was told by the Dream Center that students weren't notified because the accreditation change was being appealed. An email went out to Art Institute of Colorado students earlier this month saying that appeal was denied. And as I mentioned, I haven't been able to get the Dream Center or any official at the Art Institute of Colorado to talk to me. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and our arts reporter Stephanie Wolf joins us to talk about what is happening at the Art Institute of Colorado, which lost its full accreditation and will close this month. Say more about uh, what this accreditation loss means for students. Accreditation is sort of a stamp of approval. It says this school is legit. Attending an unaccredited school might disqualify you from financial aid. Hmm. And employers could look differently at degrees, though in many of these creative fields in particular, a candidate's portfolio might carry more weight than the degree itself. 23-year-old Deanna Brown of Colorado Springs graduated from the Interior Design Program in March. She says she feels lucky she found a job, but she's worried about what this all means for future job searches and career advancement. I didn't think I could stress about school so much after I graduated school. Just stress knowing that I graduated wanting to go into commercial design, knowing that I can't take the national test, which means I can't do what I wanted in commercial design. There may be ways for her to take that test, but it's unclear. She says if she had known right away about the loss of accreditation, she would have transferred. Now she'll have to fork out more money to retake those spring term classes somewhere else. Unaccredited degrees also make it difficult or even impossible for graduates to get into advanced degree programs. Now, what about students still trying to finish their education? So it's different for students who are close to graduating versus those who are not. Students within a year of finishing can transfer all of their credits, including the unaccredited ones, to finish a similar degree at the Rocky Mountain College of Art and Design in Lakewood, also known as RENCAD. This was done through an official agreement between REMCAD and the Art Institute of Colorado. It had to get special approval, and it only covers six degree programs. And those students that are a little further away from graduation? Yeah, so they can only transfer up to 60 credits to REMCAD, and that's in line with the school's standard transfer policy, though it's created challenges for students like Richard Lack. He's 34, a game art and design major, and a military veteran. He switched from the Art Institute to REMCAD and lost a bunch of his credits. He used the GI Bill to pay for school. Since I lose all the, the almost half my credits, all that money's gone. The whole reason I joined the military was to pay for college. So it's almost like getting out, going to school, and then half of that being wiped away. Like, And then now I'm going to have to come out of pocket even though I already did my time. A number of faculty members and staff have also made the leap from Art Institute to RENCAD. Though it's been a difficult transition, here's Richard Lack again. People that go to art school are following a dream. And especially for that much money, that's like a statement and saying like, hey, I'm really going to pursue this. I think I'm good at it. I want to get better at it. And for a company like the Dream Center to take that all away is super ironic. Hmm. What other options are there for students? 
There are a number of local schools who are willing to work with Art Institute of Colorado students on a case-by-case basis. Dream Center offered $5,000 to students who want to transfer, but there are some strings attached. Students must agree not to sue or to speak to the press. Um, Some jokingly refer to this as hush money. As hush money. Uh, So I gather Richard Lack didn't take that money, I mean, since he talked to you? That's right. He he might actually seek out help through the VA. Um, a number of Art Institute students are also seeking a kind of loan forgiveness that applies if a school misled them or broke the law. Isn't Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos reconsidering those protections, though? Yeah, those were regulations from the Obama administration. Is anyone taking Dream Center to court over this? Uh, there are some Art Institute students in Chicago who are suing the company, saying they were misled. Meanwhile, a group of Colorado students sent letters to the State Department of Higher Education, Denver's mayor, and Colorado's attorney general. They've told me they plan to follow up, especially with a new AG coming in. But I don't know of any lawsuits in Colorado right now. Thanks, Steph. Thank you. CPR's arts reporter Stephanie Wolf on the coming closing of the Art Institute of Colorado. Let's let our next guest introduce herself. I was the CEO of a large religious nonprofit, the host of a national television show. I preached in megachurches. I was a successful, well educated, white American male. I knew from the time I was three or four years of age I was transgender. In my naivete, I thought I got to choose. I thought a gender fairy would arrive and say, okay, the time has come. But alas, no gender fairy arrived. So I just lived my life. But the call toward authenticity has all the subtlety of a smoke alarm. And eventually decisions have to be made. So I came out as transgender, and I lost all of my jobs. In 21 states, you can't be fired for being transgender. But in all 50, you can be fired if you're transgender and you work for a religious corporation. Good to know. (laughs) So that is the Reverend Paula Williams speaking at TEDx Mile High last year. We'd met her shortly before that as she was consulting with a Denver church that had decided to be more inclusive. And uh, Reverend Williams is back with us now. Hi, Paula. I'm so glad to be here, Ryan. Nice to see you. I understand that your life changed pretty dramatically after our last conversation. Your show changed everything for me because the main curator for TEDx Mile High, which is one of the largest TEDx's in the world, heard the show, contacted me and said, would you speak for our fall event in the fall of of November 2017? I said yes. And that now has been viewed over 1.6 million times. Oh, my goodness. And uh, that's not where it ended with, with the TED folks, I guess. It did not end there. I heard from women on all seven continents, including Antarctica. And not long after that, I was contacted by TED themselves, by the parent organization, asking if I would speak for TED Women, which I did just a little over two weeks ago. We'll talk about uh, exactly what you said in just a bit, but... There's also a movie being made about your life. I am meeting one of the potential writers this afternoon, which will be interesting. Yeah, I've contracted with a 
a Hollywood firm for my life rights, which sounds kind of Faustian, but that's what they call it. <laughs> <laughs> Your life rights. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it, it does sound loaded, doesn't it? Uh, in the TEDx talk, so those are the independently organized ones, uh, you say you've had the experience of presenting as both a man and a woman. And I understand that you use that perspective now to talk not so much about the trans experience, but about gender equity. What do you mean by that? Well, the vast majority of my speaking around the United States and also in Europe is about gender equity. There's no way a well-educated white male can understand how much the culture is tilted in his favor. There's no way he can understand that because that's all he's ever known and all he ever will know. And conversely, there's no way a woman can understand the full import of that because being a female is all she's ever known. Well, I have a unique experience of having lived both ways, and the differences are massive. And the lack of equity, you know, we might have equality, which means that the world by law should be treating us the same, but equity, no. For instance, in the United States, your average female earns 78 cents on the dollar of what your average male earns in the same position. If she's African-American, it's 64 cents on the dollar. Native American, 59 cents on the dollar. Hispanic American, 54 cents on the dollar. And that's just in the realm of pay equity. Just in the realm of pay equity. Give us some other realms. In other words, where have you sensed a difference? 4.8% of Fortune 500 CEOs are females. Only 22% of senior vice presidents are females. And I notice that I am constantly having to prove myself all over again. Every corporate environment I go into to speak, they do not look at the aggregate body of my work. Now, right after I transitioned, I thought because there was no aggregate body of my work except as a male. But now that I've been living as a female for five years, I do have a sizable body of work, but I'm only judged based on my most recent productivity. What's the last thing you did? And that's one of the big differences I noticed. You did not sense that when you presented as male. Oh my goodness, no. Hmm. No, I, I mean, I brought a lot of my entitlement with me. I had a lot of decades as a male. But still, I don't think I had a clue just how entitled I was. I, I feel like I can't get enough of these examples because it's it's so interesting to have the perspective from someone who's seen it sort of from both genders. But c can you give us just a few examples, maybe in your daily life that you encounter? Well, you know, when I would travel to speak, I um, often want to give examples. And so I would give some of the best. I've flown over two million miles with American Airlines. So a lot of them are things that have happened in the air. Okay. And so I would tell some of the best stories. But now I pretty much just tell the story that happened on the plane yesterday. So last week, coming home from New York, uh, I was sitting in first class because somebody has to. Um, I actually get the free upgrades because I fly them so much. And I watched as the flight attendant, a female, filled the wine glass of the gentleman next to me in the window seat in the first row three times while mine sat empty. Now, normally, early on after I transitioned, if I would see that I was just stunned, then it was pretty quick that I realized I just had to ask. And this time I just wanted to watch three full times while mine remained empty. That's the kind of thing that happens that I think women are so accustomed to, they don't even see it when it happens. Do you feel like in some respects you're living an experiment? Oh, I love that question. Yes, I do. Because I think uh, as a transgender woman, I will always be living in a liminal space between male and female. I don't look at life in 28-day cycles. I see it more linear. You know, so my experience is certainly not fully male or female. And yes, it does feel in a lot of ways like an anthropological or social experiment. Yeah. 
You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are checking back in with the Reverend Paula Williams of Lions. Uh, she has most recently done a TED Talk that I understand you did with your son. He shared his experience of having a dad who becomes a woman. What did you learn from that yourself hearing him speak? One of the things I discovered was that there's no way a transgender person can understand the impact it's going to have on their family. They will underestimate the impact because families tend to be very gendered. In my son's case, he was also a pastor, which I never saw coming. That was not exactly how he lived his 20s or his teen years. But he was a pastor in a church that when he first went there was conservative. So he took that church to a more open and liberal stance, but paid quite the price. So we both paid quite the price, and that's what we talked about it, Ted. What do you mean paid quite the price for him and for you? I lost uh, three quarters of a million in pension. Uh, He lost all the outside support he had from his denomination. So his church is thriving. They have about 500 people in Brooklyn, New York. Um, But we both lost a lot of friends, uh, probably thousands of them, literally, uh, because the religious world and the evangelical expressions of it doesn't make much room for LGBTQI people or their advocates. Was it a difficult interaction on that stage with your son? Oh, of course it was, because I caused him a lot of pain. I mean, the first six months after I came out to him, he kind of disappeared. And it's just practicing it and preparing for it over and over again was so, so difficult. You know, there's a line in it where I say that um, I watched him one day as he expressed his pain, as he talked about his grief, as he talked about his suffering, and I just wept to be the cause of such grief. And then to be reminded of that each time you rehearsed. My goodness. Yeah, which is like, yeah, dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of times. You say he disappeared for six months? Yeah, he just kind of uh, did his own work, which I think was important for him to do. My daughters have done the same at different times. Uh, My former wife and I are still close, but there were times that she separated out too, even before we divorced. Because um, it is a difficult thing to work through, particularly, I think, in a nuclear family. That national TED Talk will be online, I think, next month. Uh, January 7th. January 7th. Yeah, we just found out yesterday. It'll be featured by TED on the morning of January 7th. We read the transcript, though, and there's this really powerful line from your son. He asks, had my father ever really existed? He goes on to conclude that all those memories of his father are real and remain authentic. But I'm wondering how you would answer that question. Had his father ever really existed? I loved being a father, but I must admit, trying to maintain the continuity between my life as Paul and my life as Paula is difficult. So like in my house, I don't have any pictures of Paul. I have pictures of the kids and their spouses and my grandkids. But the continuity has been difficult for me to maintain, to realize I am the same person, because one of the things Jonathan said all the time, decidedly, was, you are blank, not the same person. Frigging, not the same person. Yes, frigging, Uh yes, correct. Mm -hmm. Is it that you took down the photos of Paul on purpose, or they had never been up? No, I took them down. Yeah, I took them down. There's still, I think, an integration piece for me, and I can only speak for myself, not any other transgender person, particularly as it relates to the parenting experience. My kids still call me dad. My son has a book out, She's My Dad, that talks about the entire experience, and I wrote portions of that book. 
Um, but it does feel like two separate chapters. Did you cut yourself out of photos? Like actually? No. No. No, I did you just not took do them that. Down. Just took them down. Yeah. Thank you for being with us and giving this update. Oh, delightful. Thank you, Ryan. Reverend Paula Williams of Lyons. She recently did a TED Talk with her son about being transgender and how that affects her family. Drought continues to cripple western states like Colorado. This year, it caused more than a billion dollars in damage to cattle and crops. CPR's environment reporter, Grace Hood, finds the people most affected develop something of a routine. Everyone has a weekly routine. Some check stocks. Others look to weather. For retired school teacher Dave Kitts, it's the U.S. drought monitor map. I don't know. I think it's a little obsessive, but yeah, I check it every Thursday. 2018 hasn't been good to Kitts or his two-acre spread outside Santa Fe. He watches the map because he can chart progress on his land. Good wet years mean normal conditions. Dry years crust the soil and kill his pinion trees. It's just upsetting and depressing to me, and it moves the other direction. Um, it definitely lifts my spirits. The National Drought Monitor map isn't just for citizen scientists like Kitts. It's for water planners who decide resource allotments, farmers who need water for their livelihoods. Most importantly, it's for federal bureaucrats who use the map to unleash billions in U.S. aid. Each week, they can see the United States. Yellow, orange, and red colors show just how dry things are. White means there isn't a drought at all. Right now, the western U.S. is a jumble of different colors. Mark Savoda started this map 20 years ago. We're covering everything from groundwater, stream flow, temperature. Savoda is a plain-speaking, Diet Mountain Dew-drinking scientist at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. He got funding to start the map after a drought struck Washington, D.C. It takes a blend of both art and science. He thinks the work deserves more attention. Droughts are like the Rodney Dangerfield of hazards. They just don't get any respect. Think about TV crews. They rush out to stand near hurricanes and wildfires, but they rarely flock to desiccated farm fields. Here's what goes into the map. It takes hundreds of people, like Colorado assistant climatologist Becky Bollinger. She watched earlier this year as the state broke records for hot and dry conditions. I'm personally feeling a little bit more hopeful. Because she's seen more snow to start this winter. And that we will be able to to start chipping away at the drought in the southwest. That's what Bollinger saw, but she wanted more context from Colorado ranchers and farmers. So she asked for field reports. And we've gotten some very specific examples of like, well, I I went out to to put in a wood post and the surface of the ground was wet and three inches deep, the, the soil was bone dry. That tells Bollinger that despite recent rain, the soil moisture hasn't replenished. So the map is a mix of agricultural missives, scientific data, and reports from climatologists. Bollinger submits her recommendation into a data feed that has dozens of similar reports from around the U.S. Then it's up to map authors like David Simmerall to make sense of it all. It's a physically and emotionally draining process. Taking those recommendations um, as well as then starting to dig into the data. 
That's where the blend of art and science comes in. And he's meticulous because each week's map has the author's name and contact information. He has to justify decisions to everyone, including politicians who hand out federal aid and farmers who receive it. Then there are everyday people. After my last shift, I had a uh, correspondence from uh, a resident uh, who lives in uh, New Mexico. Remember Dave Kitts from the beginning of the story? I gave him a a call. Kitts says he called the drought monitor after multiple storms moistened his soil, but he didn't see any changes on the map. Scientist David Simmerall was ready to listen. He told me it was the most he had seen in you know, the 25 years that he had lived in that area. It even seemed as if, you know, my little bit of data was uh, important to him and the other authors of the map. After they talked, even more rain fell and another week passed. Then Dave Kitt saw a map improvement and he noticed another change, too. A new appreciation for the drought monitor and the hundreds of people behind it. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. Director and actor Penny Marshall has died at age 75. She was well known for her role as Laverne Laverne DeFazio in the hit 70s TV show Laverne and Shirley. Marshall went on to direct films like Big, Awakenings, and A League of Their Own, which tells the true story of the World War II era women's baseball league. All these girls going to be in the league? You wish. You do wish. They're going to have four teams, 16 girls to a team. That's right. 64 girls. Yeah, what are you, a genius? <laughs> you know, they got over 100 girls here, so um, some of you are going to have to go home. Yeah, sorry about that. Come on, Doris. Those people are jerks. What do you mean, some of us? Well, earlier this year, I spoke with one of the players the movie's based on, 91-year-old Violet Schmidt-Weitzman. She lives in Fruta, Colorado, and reminisces about her time as a Rockford peach and other adventures. Welcome to the program. Thank you. I understand that you still hand out your Rockford Peach baseball cards from 72 years ago? Yes, I did. What does it look like? What is it what? Uh, What does it look like? It's got the picture of me on it and a skirt. It was about six inches above your knees. It was supposed to be peach color, like a peach. And the hat came with it. Otherwise than that, that's, that's it. We had little panties underneath, naturally. (laughs) (laughs) So we had a little uh, write-up about me on the back side of it. And it said I was a a pitcher in 1946. I have some here. If you want some, you can have some. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, How is it that you still have copies of that card, Violet? Well, there was a Finch or Flinch or whatever in Wisconsin, I think it was, and that's where we were getting them. Now we're getting them from another place. Oh, they're still being printed. Oh, oh my gosh, yes. I get fan mail all the time. The last one I got was from uh, Alabama. He was a sixth grade school teacher, history. And he was making an, uh, the board with uh, women's baseball on it. He was doing like a bulletin board. Yeah. What was it about the Rockford Peaches that so captured and has really held the public's interest? Well, they were just a good team. Good-looking gals. (laughs) If you do say (laughs) so. What more do you want? (laughs) How are you on the team? I I know you were with... I was a bench warmer. Yeah, I was going to try out for left field because I liked left field. And uh, 
Nobody was looking at me, evidently. And then I was throwing sidearm pitching to my girlfriend, Rita, and Bill Ellington signed me up, the coach of Rockford Peaches. The coach? Why were you a bench warmer? Well, they had, what, three, four other pitchers ahead of me that were the regulars, and I was just a, a rookie. What did it feel like to be chosen? Like you're a queen. <laughs> I was very thrilled to think that I was picked. Had you been playing baseball for a long time? I mean, how, how did the idea of even being a peach Well, I was a sand, I played Sandlot, and then when my mother died, we were put in the orphanage, and I played different teams from Catholic youth. We had a nun that was our coach for a while. Then we had seminarians that came in in the summertime, and they coached us. Indeed, you were in an orphanage, and, and maybe we can just back up a little bit. Being a peach was not really your first brush with fame, because before you were recruited, you were a, a book character named Curly Tup. Yes. <laughs> Tell me that story. Well, I used to wave at the 20th century train. They came twice a day past our house, morning and night. You were from so. Indiana. Then? From Fort Wayne, Indiana. Yeah. Yes. I waved twice a day to them, and uh, they took notice. Movie stars were on there. I got a autograph from Robert Taylor, Marilyn Loy, Shirley Temple. They would hollow out a potato and roll up the menu and put it in the potato and throw it out at me from the observation car. I mean, I could go on and on. I think I, I might hear your daughter in the background who's whispering that Spencer Tracy was on board. Spencer Tracy, yes. <laughs> and then you became depicted in, in this book. Yeah. I was mayor of Detroit for two minutes when I was there. Uh, this was on the book tour? Yes. Uh-huh. They took me, I think it was 10,000 mile different places that the trip was to sign these books. Huh. After those days, those happy curly top days, uh, your mother died of a, a sudden heart attack at the age of 32. And um, this is the beginning of how you wind up in an orphanage. My dad remarried after mother died and didn't want us. So we were put in a Catholic home by an aunt. That must have been very difficult. Yes, it was. it was. But the nuns were, you know, nice. and Introduced you to baseball, I guess. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we had uniforms on, too. I mean, our skirts were down to our ankles. That doesn't sound very easy for running bases. <laughs> they were bases. different than what the all-American girls wore. It kind of held you back. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Many decades later, you were an extra in League of Their Own. The movie with Tom Hanks, Gina Davis, Rosie O'Donnell, Madonna. Was that movie true to the reality of the Rockford Peaches? Yes and no. That's Hollywood for you. <laughs> we didn't have a coach coming into the locker room, things like that. So the movie depicts a male coach coming into the women's locker room. That never happened. No, uh -uh. Okay. they never came in there. Not when I was in there anyway. Now, can I see you if, if I watch the movie? Yes. I'm wearing a white sweatshirt that says All-American Girls Professional Baseball on it. And I was behind the first baseline. 
but some of these scales are quite big, and you could just barely see me a little <laughs> bit on it. But <laughs> I'm a short one. And then we finished off the movie, the 43 of us scales did. That's in right. In Cooperstown. Home of the Baseball Hall of Fame, of course. Yes. Why did you leave the Rockford Peaches after a year? Tell me what went into my, that. Uh, I met my husband, and he said he married a, a woman and not a muscle man. And he never let me work. He said, if you go to work, I'll stay home and watch the kids and do the housework, and we'll live off your wages. So I stayed home then. What did you think of that? Well, I stayed home. You mind your the boss. <laughs> do you regret it sometimes? No. No, I don't. Uh-uh. I want to talk about your skydiving because <laughs> you don't seem to be able to just sit down and You be... ought to do it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you did this at 90, huh? Yes. I thought, well, George Bush could do it at 90. I could do it at 90. The free fall I didn't like because it's quite cold coming down without the parachute. And then he opens up the parachute and you float down. But all I kept saying, when he was showing me different monuments and that, telling me different things, and I kept saying, get me to the ground. Just get me to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> was this above Grand Junction? Uh, no, Moab, Utah. Above Moab? I'd do it again, I think. Would you? Uh-huh. Do you still watch baseball? Uh, no, it's a little slow. I like football and <laughs> basketball. <laughs> Not the answer I was expecting, Violet. <laughs> thank you so much for being with us. But I like ball at baseball. <laughs> I appreciate your time. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, you for having me. 91-year-old Violet Schmidt-Weitzman was a pitcher for the Rockford Peaches in 1946. She now lives in Fruta, Colorado. That's an encore of our interview in light of Penny Marshall's passing, director of A League of Their Own. This used to be my playground This used to be my childhood dream A Denver comedian made a list of 10 best comedy albums of the year. Adam Caton Holland, performing his signature bits, landed on a list compiled by Vulture, that's New York Magazine's pop culture site. The record was recorded at a club in Brooklyn, and you really get a sense of the room. Caton Holland is quick to point out the distracting bocce game being played on the floor above. When Comedy Central said they were going to let me do an album for them, they're like, what do you need for a venue? And I was like, well, it'd be nice if not all the time, not constantly, but occasionally, there could be the low roll of bocce balls above... <laughs> So that the person listening to the album at home could be like, are they still playing bocce ball? Oh, yep, they are still playing bocce ball above wherever this album was recorded. Does such a place exist? And Comedy Central's like, oh, you bet your ass it exists. It's called Union Hall. And the acoustics are literally perfect for bocce ball comedy. So thank you for coming out to my bocce comedy extravaganza. We're going to do it. This record, which isn't necessarily suitable for children, bit of a disclaimer there, this record has bits about bird-watching, hot dogs, author Harper Lee, and Adam's chill life in Colorado. If you ask me, it doesn't get better than a few craft beers. Maybe taking my dog on a hike through them Rocky Mountains. Do I tie a little bandana around my dog's neck? 
I don't know. <laughs> Depends how chill I'm feeling. <laughs> chill. So chill I go to like mountain music fests. Just stomp. Just get my stomp on. <laughs> just out there stomping at mountain fests. That's how chill I am. I was recently stomping at a mountain fest when I witnessed the most quintessentially Colorado thing I've ever, ever seen in my entire life. It's this tall, lanky dude just bobbing through the crowd, walking. He's yelling out to anybody who listen. He'll go, hey, does anybody know where I can score some of that Colorado tush? Just looking for some of that sweet, sweet Colorado tush. I'll pay for it. I'm willing to buy. I'm an honest man. Just want some of that sweet Colorado tush you hear so much about. And then this other guy out there just goes, do you mean kush, you dumb Texas Which answers the question, no, legalization does not necessarily equal tolerance. <laughs> that, uh, that mountain fest I was out there stomping at was in a town called Telluride, Colorado. It's my favorite part. Some of you have been there. The best part of Colorado is Telluride. It's like Aspen, but with taste. And if anyone ever asks you, what's the whitest thing you've ever heard? Say it was a comic who, who said, tell you right, it's like Aspen, but with taste. <laughs> Beneath the slow funeral dirge of bocce balls rolling overhead. <laughs> An excerpt of Adam Caton Holland performs his signature bits, which the pop culture site Vulture ranks among its 10 best comedy albums of the year. Our next guest isn't officially a poet laureate, but you could call him a poet lariat. In case that joke flies by, a lariat is a lasso. There are some that like the city. Grasses, curried smooth and green. Theaters and strangling collars. Wagons run by gasoline. But for me, it's hoss and saddle. Every day without a change in a desert sun a-blazing on a hundred miles of range and riding, riding. That is cowboy poet Terry Nash He was recently named Male Poet of the Year by the International Western Music Association, and his latest album, A Good Ride, was chosen Cowboy Poetry CD of the Year. He joins us from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction, and Terry, welcome to Colorado Matters. Terry, you there? Yes, I am here. Okay. Nice to hear you on the other side of the divide. Uh, Your poetry often paints gritty pictures of ranching life, and you know of what you write because you grew up on a farm near Idalia. It's a tiny town on the eastern plains. You now raise cattle on a small ranch near Loma on the western slope. Uh, I wonder if living that life is a must to be a good cowboy poet. You know, I believe it is. You can't, you can't make this stuff up. It's the cowboy poetry comes from from uh, from the heart, from living the life. And uh, you know, people can tell if you're if you're faking something, they're gonna know. Are there cowboy poets who fake it? Oh no, I won't go so far as to say that. But <laughs> but there's there's a lot of them that are a little more real than the others. How often does your daily life on the ranch uh, immediately infuse the poems you write? Oh, it's it's a it's a matter of 
uh, gathering up little tidbits here and there, and eventually you've got enough to put to a poem. I've got a good poem that I wrote called December Stragglers that is centered around a ride, but it's, it actually came from several rides that I made. December Stragglers, I'll just acknowledge, by the way, our connection apparently with Grand Junction's a little less than stellar, but tell me about these stragglers. Well, it's, uh, you know, we run our cattle on the mountain from the first part of June up until November when the weather dictates that we get them off the mountain, get them back down to the valley. And and when you gather cattle off, off some range where they're enjoying the feed and well, maybe they don't want to leave very bad, and some of them are pretty good at hiding. And so that's what we call the stragglers. We have to go back in after we've picked up most of them and gather up the stragglers. Let's pause for just a moment and talk about the concept of cowboy poetry itself. Can you kind of define it for people who may not be familiar with the genre? Cowboy poetry speaks to the life it, it speaks to the, the cowboy and the ranching way of life and the, the agriculture. Uh, it uh, speaks to the heritage that we all share. And just to be clear, I, I figure almost any of us somewhere in our past have agriculture in our background. And, and uh, so Cowboy poetry will bring that out in a person. I watch them in the audiences sometimes, folks that haven't ever heard this before, and I'll be talking about a, a calf that was just born or, or riding a horse, and I'll be out there, I'll be watching folks out there nodding, smiling, and some of them will come up to me afterwards and say, you know, I didn't even know this existed. Hmm. I'm so glad you said that because uh, cowboy poetry might strike people as niche, but this idea that it connects people with something in their past, something in perhaps the generations before them is so powerful to me. I mean, I grew up a city kid, but I would spend summers on a farm in Iowa, mesmerized uh, when I was small by the giant combine that was parked away. Uh, So there's a universality, I hear you saying, to cowboy poetry. Oh, there really is. I, I believe that firmly. There's few people that come away with a blank look in their eyes that like, I don't even know what the heck that guy said, but, but, uh, there's so many of them that I'm speaking to that hadn't heard the language in so long. And all of a sudden it comes back to him. You'd been nominated poet of the year without winning for, I think six years. You oh say, yeah. You say <laughs> you were starting to feel like the Susan Lucci, the soap opera star. I was, I was, uh, International Western Music Association's answer to Susan Lucci. <laughs> yeah, she was nominated 19 times for an <laughs> Emmy before finally nabbing one. What do you think put you over the top this time? Oh, gosh, I don't know. You, you know, you, the more you perform, I guess, the the better you become, or the, maybe the more at ease you are. Hmm. And I write as many poems as I can, and and so you just... Well, in the in the cowboy lexicon, we call it wet saddle blankets. The more a horse can get a few wet blankets wet, you know, from sweat, from working, the more he, the better horse he becomes. And that's kind of the way I look at cowboy poetry. The the more wet saddle blankets you you experience, the the better your stuff gets. What a poetic way to describe it. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with Colorado cowboy poet Terry Nash, 
who has been chosen as Male Poet of the Year. And, you know, occasionally cowboy poetry doesn't have much to do with cowboying. Um, You have a poem on your latest album called Skype. (laughs) And our connection actually sounds a bit like Skype today. Will you recite a few verses of that? Oh, I'd love to. And it's just a silly little poem I wrote after somebody asked me if I had a Twitter account. Okay. (laughs) I never thought I'd ever Twitter, nor considered that I'd tweet. I keep my hashtags to myself and my sentences complete. I used to think that Facebook just happened when in bed and you drifted off mid-paragraph and your novel hits your head. But now I've got this touch this smartphone with a touchscreen and some apps, and I'm feeling sort of trendy, and I figure just perhaps I'll polish up my technique. Succumb to the latest hype. I'll clean my stash, brush my hat, and call someone in Skype. So do you have Twitter? (laughs) Heavens, no. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And no thought of it? Oh, no. You know, and I am a... I spend a lot of time on Facebook, and, and uh, I figured Twitter's just going to take up much more of my time, and well, i got chores to do. What are the chores you have to do today still? Well, of course, I've got the cattle and horses fed this morning already, so I'm working on my corrals outside, working, building fence, and, and uh, just there's just a lot of things to do on a little place like mine. Terry Nash, congratulations. Thanks for spending time with us. Thank you. Terry Nash is an award-winning cowboy poet from a ranch near Loma on Colorado's western slope. And uh, we'll wrap up with a few more stanzas, stanzas that is, from uh, the title poem on his new album. When my earthly trail is ended, my final bacon curled, and the last great roundup's finished at the home ranch of the world. I don't want no harps nor halos, robes nor other dressed-up things. Let me ride the starry ranges on a pinto hoss with wings just riding. Riding, nothing I'd like half so well as rounding up the sinners that have wandered out of hell and riding. Once again, our guest Terry Nash. He joined us from our studio in Mains on Main Street in Grand Junction. Finally, today the 2019 Grammy nominations are out. Among the nominees, Don McKinney, Director of Bands and Associate Professor of Conducting at CU Boulder. He's up for an award in the Best Classical Compendium category. McKinney was nominated as a producer for the Dallas Winds recording of John Williams at the Movies. This is one of Williams' lesser-known film scores, the Copeland-esque overture from the 1972 Western, The Cowboys. Several scenes from that movie were filmed in Colorado, by the way, including in Castle Rock, Durango, Pagosa Springs, and Canyon City.
Is there anything that John Williams can't do? It's an excerpt from John Williams at the movies by the Dallas Winds. The album was co-produced by CU professor Don McKinney and was just nominated for a Grammy. The 61st annual Grammy Awards will be held on February 10th. One last word. We're working on a gardening segment. We do one seasonally, and we welcome your questions about your garden. Maybe prepping it for warmer times. How to take care of weeds right now. Submit your questions. We'll have a master gardener answer them. News at CPR.org is the email address. News at CPR.org. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. CPR News.